Welcome to 1% Wiser. Today I'm speaking to Dr. Jenny McLaurin. Jenny is a paediatrician, writer, and public health expert, with particular interests in culture, bioethics, and theology. In our conversation today, we discuss how our body's healing processes can be used as a model for healing in our interpersonal relations and in our communities. We talk about how we can become more resilient to injury and how we can support those we love when they are injured. We also talk briefly about faith and science, vaccines, and many other topics besides. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Jenny McLaurin. Well, Jenny, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Jamie. I'm so glad to be with you. Yeah, there's so much we can talk about in your in your wonderful book, but I'd like to start really with the, the very basics. You're talking a lot about wounds and about healing, and you talk about physical, spiritual, emotional, and I believe you pronounce it corporal wounds, but correct me if I'm wrong. Could you talk a little bit about what the difference is between these types of wounds, perhaps the ones in particular, corporal wounds may be less familiar for people? Sure. And it's corporate wounds, like corporation. That's all right. And corporate corporate comes from the Latin word corpus, which means of a body, having a body. So, you know, we've sort of hijacked that idea with organizations and big groups of people, whether or not they're business organizations or community groups, any sort of gathering of, of humans together around a common goal that they agree on. So I thought about the wounds, the physical wounds that we have that I see in medicine in our bodies, in our individual bodies, and how incredibly connected and collaborative the systems in our body, our individual bodies are in order to heal a localized wound. And I wondered if we applied that same imagery to the wounds that we experience in our collective bodies, which I call corporate wounds for for ease of terminology, that perhaps we could use the same sort of understanding in a metaphorical way to address how we might better heal as we engage with each other in society and families and in community and in faith communities, which are particularly important to me at this time in our in our culture. And what would you say were some of the biggest lessons that you could apply from thinking about this medical perspective of physical wounds that you could apply in this cor- corporate uh, sphere? Right. Well, I got intrigued when I heard my good friend and co-author, Bem Kuliat, who has a longer name than that, but that's her, her nickname. And she's a molecular geneticist with phenomenal training. She worked on the Human Genome Project. She gave a talk on the four stages of wound healing, which I had learned about ages ago in medical school. And they're quite simple, clotting, inflammation, tissue building, and scarring usually. Her work is in regeneration. So instead of scarring, it actually makes new tissue, just like the fetus does in utero. And Bem's thesis was how incredibly oriented towards healing our body's molecular processes are. And at a microcellular level, everything orients towards healing after we've been wounded. That 
idea fascinated me and I thought about it in the wounds that I can see at the bigger level, not the microcellular level, but even simple things like if I scraped my knee on a bicycle like I did as a kid and, you know, it was a pretty torn up knee, but without any doctors or intervention or anything else over about a month, I had a nice scar shaped like South America on my knee instead of a, a raw oozy cut. And the body just does that. It's, it's totally oriented towards as much healing as is possible. And I, I'm sad about our society and the way that in, in North America, and I think it's probably true in the United Kingdom, that there are so many factions that are dug in in a, in a time of outrage against each other. And there's protest upon protest and disagreement upon disagreement and so much divisiveness that it, it doesn't look like our wounds are oriented towards healing at all. And I felt like we all need to pause and decide whether we want ourselves to be healed with each other. And if we do, how we might go about that. Hmm. I think I'd love to come and talk more about that point about community and community healing. But before we get there, I'm curious in researching this book, what lessons or things you learned in in this journey that you've been on in, in writing it that you now apply to your life or in in your relations with others or in, in the world? That's a great question. I've learned so much. And I've also learned a lot of the science that I didn't know as well. But one of the things I like is just having a handy metaphor. So having the handy metaphor of wound healing has helped me personally and my friend, Bem, my co-author. So when something sudden happened that was very difficult to deal with, we communicated with each other that we had a clot and that friends had shown up and brought food or you know, somebody had given us a hug or somebody had just understood how painful a situation was. And that was a clot. Even among the book publisher, there was a staff member who was experiencing a really hard time and everybody sent her notes and stuff and talked about it being a clot. And then we've, I've discussed among myself and with, with others, how much inflammation is appropriate in a particularly wounding situation. And there is a lot that's wrong. And there's a lot that's wrong with how the pandemic's being handled. There's a lot that's wrong with how sexuality and gender is being handled publicly and in faith communities. It, the list goes on and on. But I've tried to discern myself, when should I jump in and fight? And when should I try to move forward towards getting some closure around the situation? And that that's that's been helpful, just referring to it as inflammation. And there's one, Jamie, I don't know if you've read it yet. There's a little piece called Proud Flesh, and that one hits home for me. Yeah. How much am I getting in the way of, how much is my own righteousness getting in the way of community healing or even family healing? So yeah, that's, and and I recently donated a kidney to a friend. So I have fresh scars and they, they tin, they, sort of hurt every once in a while. And I think about that, oh, they're getting revised. And we've had some difficult times in our family. 
over the last few months. And I think, oh, okay, our scars are getting revised a bit. And I, I don't know, I guess it makes me a little more hopeful. It makes me not as surprised when things seem to go wonky up and down on the course of healing, that it's it's not a linear path. It's a staged, phased path for sure, but it isn't linear in the same way. And it has circle backs and revisions and care that needs attending at different phases in different ways. Yeah, so so much in there and and it's an amazing gift your your donation of a kidney before before anything else that's such a wonderful mm-hmm. thing to do i wonder so many things i'd love to fault, pick apart so many threads in that answer but maybe the first one i'd love to hear a little bit more about inflammation because we or at least in my my uh, ignorance i've always thought of inflammation as something bad but you know in in your book you talk about how it's it's part of the healing process so i i wonder if you could talk a bit about inflammation, how how we should think about inflammation. Um, sure. And I think, Jamie, we get it wrong on, in, on both extremes. And, you know, the U.S. has a, probably rightfully so, has a stereotype of being a, a bunch of individualistic inflammatory people. And the U.K. and Canada, where I've worked, has a stereotype, by Americans at least, of being overly polite and not bringing up anything unkind at a dinner table or or in public. And I don't know, you know, neither stereotype is totally true, but when we look at inflammation, inflammation is a helpful thing in the body. It's necessary. So right after a wound happens, immediately within seconds, the clots are forming and, and they're doing their work, but that's only the first stage. And then the second stage takes a little bit longer and that's inflammation and and the body it's it just lasts a few days but it's an, it's a high alert uh, by the cells that are supposed to clean up foreign enemies basically so the white blood cells come in and they clean up debris in the wound and they eat up infectious particles and they try to clear away any sort of thing that is going to keep the wound site from being ready to heal and that's an incredible process. We help it out sometimes by washing a wound and all of that, but the body does a lot of it by itself. The problem is that inflammation can go awry and it can forget to turn off. It can turn against ourselves. That's, that's autoimmune processes when inflammation turns against us and doesn't recognize when to stop. And As I think about it around healing the wounds that we have with each other, some people will say, oh, don't, you know, don't address the elephant in the room, or why can't we just move on? Why can't we just agree to disagree? And the reason that we can't do that as a practice, as a first line practice, is that because then the wound is always infected. And even if it does scar over, it will be painful, it won't be well healed, and it might rupture again. And we see that a lot with in our country right now with issues around race relations. It, it hasn't healed well, and it is rupturing again. So we need some healthy inflammation, and we need appropriate levels of outrage at something being wrong and calls for justice. And we need to point to where there still is debris. There's still things that are going to get in the way of healing before we close up that wound and call it good. So 
that takes discernment. It takes people with lots of different opinions and personalities. And it takes most of all those who are the most wounded by the situation, being able to say where it still hurts. And I think we don't sometimes want to listen long enough to that part. And, but we have to, to, to move on healthily to the next stage. A related idea, but I'm not sure quite how to think about it in my own mind, so maybe you can help me, is this idea of needing a certain level of stress or almost I was thinking of it like sort of mini wounds or maybe maybe wounds is not the right word in order for personal growth and even and physical growth even, right? So you go to the gym, you lift weights and that causes your muscles to uh, be stretched and then they and then they and then they grow and the same I wonder could be could probably be said for emotional or spiritual growth I wonder how you would how you think about that in in kind of contrast to this idea of inflammation how do you think of this idea of I don't know how you would want to call it stress or or or, or sort of yeah stress to the point but not to the point where it's wounding maybe you could talk a little bit about that and correct any mistakes I've just made <laughs> <laughs> no you're right Jamie I, I guess I would use two different words one would be stress and the other word would be tension so tension has to happen in the biological wound setting for the body to realize that it's time to go ahead and pull the sides together so at first, when the body makes uh, new tissue growth, it's a nice gauzy bandage-like material that the body makes. It's called granulation tissue. And we've all seen that on our bodies when we've scraped something. It's that pink gooey stuff. But then the body starts putting out signals that, are, that cause tension in the wound site. And that tension, which is a stress, tells some of the cells that they're no longer needed. Some of the cells die away by programmed cell death. Other cells actually change and transform into different kinds of fibers that are stronger. And they pull together to get those wound edges closed. And that, that pulling, that tension is actually a good thing. And so the way that I think about that imaginatively as we try to heal with each other is that some tension at a wound in our wound site after we've moved towards the phase of trying to grow and recover is a good thing. And it it's telling us that we're getting close. We're getting to a place where we can come together and there will be a change. And in fact, if there's a healthy recovery from deep wounds with each other, there'll be a transformation that takes place. So the new place isn't going to look like the old place. We can't go back. We can't just have things the way they were. Hopefully they'll be better than they were. If they're not better, at least they'll be scarred and functional, which is what the body does to make make it so we can keep going and we can move forward. And that kind of becomes background noise instead of the most important thing that's happening. So that's how tension works. Stress also works, and that happens actually throughout the wound healing process in terms of releasing cortisol, our stress hormone, and some other things. And initially, the stress is around fight or flight, right? So we have to figure out what to do. But then if we stay in that sort of state, that's that's what people with PTSD stay in so that they get triggered easily and they're always in a sort of vigilant state. So that level of stress isn't good. 
but stress around the tension lines is points to us about, okay, where are the margins of this? What, what needs to be pulled together? Where are the boundaries so that we can actually tell? And that, that, that's okay. What would you say to someone who's listening who maybe has just gone through some kind of wound themselves and maybe are at the very beginning of their healing journey and maybe thinking about it from two perspectives, maybe someone who's themselves been injured or has a wound and maybe somebody who's trying to support somebody who's who's recently been wounded? Yeah. Good question, Jamie. Well, first I would say I'm sorry that you're going through this. Second, I would say... There's always hope for healing. Third, I would say it almost always, if it's a deep, if it's a deep pain, it takes longer than you want it to, to heal. And that's the thing about our stages of biological wound healing. The clotting is fast. So stopping the bleeding and people actually feel a whole lot better after they, you know, clot and that, that happens. Then the inflammation has a fair amount of pain with it, but that's not a very long phase either. But the the new tissue building and the reformation of our wound, that takes a really long time. Scarring can take a lifetime of revision. So it takes longer than we want, so don't be surprised. But in the very immediate moment, all people need to know is that they're loved and cared for and that this isn't the end of their story. And it's not a... It's not a surprise. We always act shocked when something happens. And while betrayals are awful, as an example, they're shocking in that we've lost trust in somebody maybe and somebody has failed us, but they're also part of the human story and always have been. And from a faith perspective, those who love deeply are wounded deeply. They go together and there's no separate, there never is a separation of what knowing what it's like to feel deep pain and knowing what it's like to feel deep joy. I, I don't think you can have the joy without understanding something of the hardship. And that said, I would hate it if somebody said that to me right away because, <laughs> because that's not what they need to hear. So immediately, if you're a friend, <laughs> just tell them that you love them and stand by them and then show up a month later when they still feel really crummy. Yeah, I, you've just touched on on faith and I'd love to, to start to move on to that, that topic. You have a really interesting background as, as a medical doctor with, with a public policy background and also theology. I'd love to understand so you've spent a lot of time at this kind of intersection of, of faith and of science and of medicine i'd love to understand how you see these two aspects of your life what it means to do science and medicine what it means to have faith and how how those kind of interlink in your in your profession and in your life sure well jamie and you've known me your whole life so when i was just going to medical school, I, I went from a time period of, I, I grew up in a church, in a church life, a Catholic church, and then kind of didn't care about it for a number of years. And then got intrigued by questions of faith again, about at the same time that I went to medical school. 
And so I was learning all about medicine and trying to probe what I felt about faith at about the same time. And those journeys have continued my whole life. So I continue to probe both and I continue to sort of re-understand and reorient myself in both as time goes on. And what I like about both is they're intellectually black, it's, I shouldn't say a black hole, but they're intellectually limitless in terms of thinking. So I'll never know all there is to know medically. And unfortunately, when we graduated from medical school, our dean said half of what you've learned is wrong. The problem is you won't know what it is until you're at the end of your careers. <laughs> and that was so depressing. I was like, oh, I can't believe I've learned so much and half of it isn't even right. But I think that's also true of my early faith. And, and I don't know that I would use the word right about either one of those groups, but I feel more confident in terms of what I can trust and what I can't trust as I grow older. For me, the faith part is, is found in the Christian expression, but I honor people who, who find their faith in other expressions. And for me, they both push the intellect, but they also push what it means to love and what it means to care about community and what it means about to be human, which is part of your podcast. And for me, they both, uh, hold lots of mystery, which I appreciate and am drawn to. I'm drawn to the mystery as much as I'm drawn to the knowing. So yeah, that, 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 sort of a mystical answer. No, absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, I, I understand. And there's a lot of, you you weave many stories throughout your book from from the Bible and things like this. So I'm curious how you, how you think about the Bible. Uh, do you think of it as more literal or more metaphorical and as parable and what how do you how do you think about that when you're oh when you're, that's a great question so i think of it as inspirational but i won't necessarily define what that means and then it's a book of literature so there's all sorts of genres in it so there's poetry there's creation tales there's prophecies there's history and so you have to know what you're reading when you're reading a particular part of it there's poetry so the song of solomon is really different from the gospel of john <clears throat> which is in the new testament for christians and Genesis is a creation narrative, and it was done in a time where there were many creation narratives around, and the singularity of it was that it it called upon one God rather than multiple gods, and it called upon a God who was good rather than a God who was destroying everything. I don't believe in a literal seven days. I'm quite happy with evolution, and I... I think a lot of people who criticize the Bible have never read it. And some who have read it haven't understood how to read it. But I, I do find that there's tons of wisdom in it about the human experience, as well as about what, what goodness looks like and what human nature looks like. And then because I'm a Christian, I'm, I do, I do take into account the, the gospel stories as if they happened. So I, I 
not exactly history, but but accounts, right? Sort of newspaper accounts. Newspapers aren't history either. They're just somebody's perspective, but but fairly trustworthy, like sort of New York Times, Wall Street Journal in the U.S. <laughs> I like the Guardian and. I get their news, so I don't know if that works for you. BBC. I'm also familiar with the New York Times, so I'm I'm curious. Then, how does that? How does your faith then apply in healing or in 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 wounds? How? What are the kind of core tenets of of faith that that are mm. translated in in that when when wounds appear in personal or communal or corporate settings? Well, one of the things about Christian faith, and maybe I don't know that much about the other faiths, but it's, it's hope is always a central theme. And the idea that there's more than we can understand and that it's good rather than bad in terms of more of what we can understand and that there is a God who loves us. All of that affects how I view the world of medicine and the world of community. So in my own personal experience, I've had some really devastating family situations. And rather than think that's the end of the story, I think there's more to be revealed. And I kind of put my hands out and say, this is way bigger than I can handle, but I'm going to trust that, you know, God is still good and that there's there are unseen forces that can work for good, whether those are other people's prayers or what Christians would call the Holy Spirit or good energy or whatever people how people want to think about it. But but there is a life force that's oriented towards wholeness and that we can harness ourselves to that. And that gives me a lot of hope and it gives me confidence that the difficulties that I see in front of me today aren't going to have the last word. Yeah, that makes makes a lot of sense. You talk a lot about healing in, in community and community, though, seems to be in decline in a lot of areas with people being more atomized and more isolated, especially in the last year or so. I wonder what thoughts you have around this kind of decline of community and what, how we can start to heal some of those wounds specifically in, in strengthening community. Yeah. Gosh, Jamie, it's so true here. Communities are more atomized. That's a perfect word for it. And we've steadily been marching towards that over the last hundred years, but we're, we're, we've accelerated our pace recently. And I'm a fan of technology. I'm loving that we get to talk with each other right now, but We've also chosen who we will communicate with in ways that distort true community. So for me, true community is diverse. And in the body, it's diverse. So there's all sorts of different members that come together to uh, help out in the case of wound healing and also just to keep us going in a healthy way, right? So we have a heart, we have lungs. Those are very different from each other. We need both. We need our brains. We need our nervous system. We need it all. And I think to really flourish in community, no matter the size of the community and the purpose of the community, engaging together, 
with full individuality and full unity as the ideal. And if we're all look like each other and act like each other, then that's not community. That's just sort of cloned people. So how we get there is small steps, I think. Start wherever you are. You know, you're in Edinburgh. I'm in Washington in the U.S. And we look to put our shoulders next to maybe groups that we don't know as well, but that we can find something common with. So whether it's restoring a trail, meeting different people. I play tennis. I've met all sorts of different people. I have as many friends who don't share my faith views, probably more than who do. I have straight friends and queer friends and friends of different nationalities and ethnic groups immigrant friends, citizen friends. I do have some friends who are very conservative politically and those that's that's hard sometimes for me, but I try to look and see about who they are as a person and as a whole person and not just categorize them as a, somebody who's politically conservative. So I have to find ways that aren't around sort of party lines, right? So it's not just at a church or at a political group, but more at a outdoor gathering, at a common good sort of situation, at helping children with special needs, at, you know, like I said, restoring a trail. And I think it starts in small steps and it can grow. Yeah, I think having that uh, diverse group is certainly, if nothing else, makes life more interesting. That you and I, I, yeah, I think that is that that political wound in in the United States is probably especially raw at this point in time. It is. It is very raw, and I, I think it'll take a long, long time for that to get healed. It's yeah. hard. Yeah, it's a uh, very deep division and i think and and you know as you say like recognizing beyond just the person's political views it's a human being that they're you know it's it's they have more interests outside politics and it's seeing somebody as a holistic person rather than a just a set of political beliefs i think is and i think being in the medical world is a gift that way because it's pretty hard to be in the medical world probably anywhere in the world and close yourself off from all of humanity because every kind of person comes in for care. And for me, I've worked mostly with marginalized and underserved people in the U.S. and public health. So I see a whole broad group of people that I don't live next door to and that I haven't really known too much about their world until they've shared it with me. And that's a privilege, really to be able to see that. And that is one of the things circling back to faith that one of the things I, that really drew me to, to Jesus as a personality is that idea of diversity. And he was not tribal. He, he has so many accounts of women at a time when men didn't even talk to women and talk to people across ethnicities, Samaritans, who all of them were supposed to hate Gentiles. he, he, you know, he liked tax collectors who were sort of the political nasty ones. So all sorts of people, you know, sick people, 
And I really, I, I think that's what we're being shown about what it means to love and what it means to be in community. It means to be, to not have anybody excluded from our circle of concern. Yeah, well, I, I confess a certain ambivalence towards tax collectors myself. <laughs> Me too, I can't stand it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. But uh, I, one thing I also wanted to touch on, just to because you are an expert in, in health policy, and if we can make even a tiny dent in this problem, I'd, I'd be, I'd consider we've done a good job. I'm curious what your perspective is on why it's so hard for, uh, to persuade a large percentage of the population that the, to, that the vaccine is a, is a good idea. And I know this is, this is outside the scope of your book, but I think if we have the chance to convince even a few people that it's a good idea, I would, I would consider it worthwhile to include. Sure, Jamie. And I, I have to say, I'm thrilled that you are working around reducing misinformation and helping organizations understand, because that's key. Right now, there's so much in- misinformation that comes in uh, sheep's clothing, and it's really a wolf ready to devour people. And some of it's very purposeful, um, purposefully misinformation. Some of it's just a repeated sound bites that are wrong. And I see it every single day. So people need to understand the source of information and they need to also look at the long arc of history around immunizations. Immunizations are why. We flourish in society now the way that we do. So the eradication of polio, of pertussis, way back of smallpox, of smallpox was way back in the in the early settlement of the U.S. and in, in Europe back in the 16, 1700s. And the Africans actually knew an inoculation pattern for that. So we've been doing vaccinations for years and years. This current one, people are so worried that it was so rapidly put together that somehow there's something wrong with it, but they fail to understand that the science has been there for a very long time. So the science wasn't new. What was had been developed was putting for the messenger RNA vaccine was, they were having a hard time figuring out how to put the mRNA into a form where the body wouldn't just chew it up and spit it out because that's what it would normally do. If you just put messenger RNA in somebody, the cells just destroy it before those white cells I was talking about, before it can get used. So they had to figure out how to put it in these little lipid fat, fat nanoparticles. They're just tiny little fat globules. And that was the key because then the body absorbs the fat globule and into the cells and recognizes it as as something positive. So that's a long way of saying there's nothing, there's nothing inherently new or dangerous about the messenger RNA vaccines. And the other vaccines that have been developed are more traditional, kind of like we do our flu vaccines. So those aren't, those aren't really new ideas. And it was pretty simple technology to figure out how to attack the spike protein on the coronavirus because it was it was there for everybody to see and it, and it made sense. So the researchers, while it's marvelous that they could do a vaccine so quickly, it was way easier for them than doing something like HIV or something that's been around longer. The other thing is money talks. 
And in the U.S., our vaccines are not usually funded by federal dollars, but this time they were. So so why it usually takes so long is because the drug companies are raising money with investors to be able to get to the point of doing human trials. This time they could get to human trials really fast. And they had a lot of people willing to be part of those. So they had massive human trials. They have been tested. Now Now they've been on a billion people and the rates of difficulty with the vaccine are not zero, but they're tiny compared to the rate of getting ill. So there's a lot of misinformation like the vaccines hurt fertility. Nope, they don't. Messenger RNA really can't. It doesn't go in the nucleus of the cell. It's just in the cytoplasm of the cell and it just gets chewed up. It's it's like sending a post-it note saying, please do this. And then you throw away the post-it note. So it just sends sends an order to the cell and the cell says, okay, and now I don't need you. And it, it doesn't like get carried forward at all. It gets destroyed. So what gets carried forward is the antibodies, not the messenger RNA. So the things that get made get carried forward. So the next time your body sees a spike protein, it can make antibodies. And I just want to say, eight time, even with the Delta variant and whatever variants are coming up, if you're vaccinated, you're eight times less likely to get sick and you're eight times less likely to pass it to anybody else. You're 99% less likely to have severe disease or death. And if you get sick, we're learning more and more and more about long-term COVID effects, about chronic disease, about disability, about brain fog, about early onset Alzheimer's, about heart attacks, inflammation, all kinds of things. So if people want to weigh their risks, a vaccine is not risk-free, but COVID is not risk-free. And the, the scales are incredibly weighted towards death and disability, long-term negative effects with COVID compared to vaccine. Yeah, thanks, Jenny. That's just some great points. Um, you've been very generous with your time, and I, I don't want to take up too much more. I've got a, just a couple of questions to wrap up, if I may. Coming back to wounds, and no, nobody wants to be wounded, but it's almost an inevitable part of life. What can people do to be mentally, physically, emotionally, or as the corporate body? Can we be? How can we be more resilient to wounds and to to heal better? Great question. In the book, I talk about childhood development and the best time to learn something is when we're little, right? Because that makes sort of the ruts in our brains of practice. And for anybody listening who's ever learned a new sport as an adult, right? It can feel really awkward, but over time you get into that body imagery, muscle memory, and rhythm where you kind of get in a zone with it. And I think we need to do the same thing with wounds. So we need to practice taking care of our little wounds rather than going, well, I know I shouldn't have said that to that person, but, oh, they'll get over it. And they know me. They know my personality. Tomorrow will be a better day. It might, it might be better to actually say to the person, gosh, I'm sorry. I, you know, I'm sorry I spoke that way to you. Can, let's just talk for a second about how that happened, if it's a safe person that you can talk to. 
or, you know, just trying to figure out your own role, whether you're a clot or you're inflammatory or you're part of the tissue building thing. When small wounds happen, those are the ones we can easily brush off, but those might be the ones where we want to practice a little bit about how we might orient ourselves towards healing in that situation. And that takes time and it can be even tedious and not the most fun thing we do in our day, but it can be really important. And I, in the book I talked about when my children were little, how if they were insulting each other, I made them sit down together and do a retake, like shooting a movie. So I made them do it again and again and again until we had a, a clip that we liked just to practice that. And I do that in developmental things with, with children in practice where I have them practice with parents, like how to greet people. And some of our kids with autism particularly need help with that. So they do it again and again and again and again until they know how to do it. And I think if we take a look at some of the wounds in our life and how they get started, a lot of them get started from little places. And so practicing healing in community with others in little ways may be a way that we could move forward. Thank you. I will, of course, share a, a link to your to your book and encourage people to to go and uh, check it out. But as we start to wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to share? Anything that you that I haven't talked about that you feel particularly inspired today to to share, or any other resources that you'd like to point people towards if they would like to go deeper on this? Oh, wow, Jamie, thanks. Hmm. I'm thinking about your last question and. There are some sources in the book and stuff. I'll say I'm not a therapist and I, uh, I'm just a companion on the journey. So I don't pretend to have all the answers. And it's just, it's a metaphor. For me, it's a helpful way of looking at the world sort of with fresh eyes and and feeling more hopeful and, and even laughing. I mean, I think we all have to have a sense of humor as we go forward to it's all of life isn't serious, even our wounds we can we can find some humor along the way and i'm just grateful jamie i'm grateful that you wanted to talk to me and it means a ton so thank you thank you it's a, it's a great book a beautiful book and uh, this has been a really great conversation so thank you so much for taking the time thank you jamie thanks for listening i hope you enjoyed the conversation if you did and you'd like to support the podcast please consider leaving us a review on apple podcasts or wherever you're listening. Otherwise, have a wonderful day wherever you are, and I'll see you next time.